stuck in your head. So. In September, you'll say something. I probably will. Anyway, uh, we've been doing a series I'm calling The Glossary of Grace, where over eight weeks, under the, the umbrella theme of God's grace, His undeserved gift and love and merit toward us, we've looked at uh, each week a, a different word or two that sort of uh, expresses or uh, expresses a different facet of His grace. So we've talked, well, I'll get you to do it. You can help me. What are the uh, what are the seven things we talked about so far? I'll give you grace. Repentance. Uh, repentance. Adoption. Adoption. Justification. Justification. Atonement or propitiation. Something like Sanctification. Sanctification. Regeneration. Regeneration. Seven. Well done. In order. <laughs> grace. And then I think we did. What? Maybe it was atonement. And then maybe regeneration. And then then justification. And then adoption. And then repentance. And then sanctification, I think. And today we finish with glorification. Uh, Glorification is sometimes among nerdy theological pastor types like me called the forgotten-ification. Um, because we tend to focus on the other things. I don't actually say that. Uh, it's the first time I've ever said that. I'm not going to say it again. But I just, yeah, yeah. I, uh, I say that just to simply say that uh, this is a very important aspect of God's grace toward us, but it tends to get overlooked um, for some other important things that God does. And I want us to finish by uh, looking at it because. Not only is it important, but it's also where everything is hitting, and it's how it's how uh, God finishes the story. So uh, we'll be looking at two texts tonight. You can turn to Romans eight, where we were last week. You can also turn to Revelation twenty-one, which is the end of the Bible. And uh, one of the reasons we we don't spend much time thinking about glorification or talking about it is because uh, it's a little bit confusing. Uh, anything dealing, dealing with the end times or how God makes everything right at the end, dealing with revelation in general, can be confusing. Because it's often the case that we approach the last book of the Bible, Revelation, like a puzzle book. I got this little these terms from a, a, a pastor or a teacher named Vern Poitras. We often approach Revelation like some strange puzzle book of esoteric mysteries that we have to decipher and figure out. Where the reality is... The book is actually pretty simple. It's a picture book. It's a picture book that paints pretty clearly its major themes. And its major themes are really just two. Uh, Jesus wins, and he makes everything right. In the end, that's what Revelation's about. That Jesus wins, and he makes everything right in the end. Um, and those are the dominant images in Revelation. So, And it's sort of what about glorification's all about. So I'm going to read first Romans 8. Starting in verse 18. I read these verses last week, so there's some definite overlap with what we talked about last week. Um, Romans 8, I do know where it is, starting in verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory to be revealed to us, for the creation waits with eager longing. For the revealing of the sons of God, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. 
and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we don't know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And He who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that, though, that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. Alright, so that's Romans, and it's a pretty thick theological big word language. Let's flip over to Revelation. This is also a bit of a long text, but uh, it's got a very different sort of feel. Revelation 21, starting in verse 1. Alright, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne, saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It's done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. To the one who conquers, excuse me, the one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Verse 9, Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, and I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And then chapter 22, verse 1, Almost done. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. All right, I'm going to pray, and uh, we'll jump in. Uh, Father, we thank you. I thank you for uh, these students and the opportunity we've had uh, to sit together and eat and study your word, in particular your goodness toward us uh, over these eight weeks. As we uh, come together tonight to look at these two texts, we look at things that are hard to comprehend, not only because they're far off and in the future, but 
but also uh, because it's hard to imagine the goodness of some of these things. And so we pray, Lord, you would sharpen our minds and that you would remove our cynicism and our apathy and uh, minister to us in our doubt and uh, show us not only our need of uh, this truth of how you're going to make all things right, but uh, inform us by it, change us by it. Uh, Make us people that are more confident and hopeful about what you're doing in this world uh, because of your pledge and your intent uh, to restore all things. We ask these things in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. All right, so I read a lot, and I want to go ahead and promise you right now, I'm not going to say everything about all these texts. If I preached fully, these texts would be here all all night. I don't want to do that. I'm just going to hit the highlights. And um, the the, the first thing I want to say is these texts remind us or confront us with the way things are, the way it is. And the way it currently is is not the way it's supposed to be. Uh, I have a book here to that effect. Somewhere up here, it's called Not the Way It's Supposed to Be. It's a great book, actually. It talks about the world as it currently is. And uh, our daily experience in the world is one, if we stop, where we are often frustrated. uh, And uh, depending on where we live and what we're going through, often mourning uh, a world that doesn't work the way that that things should. And uh, Romans 8 sort of tells us that this is a universal experience, that there's reasons why it's this way. In verse 19... Chapter 8, verse 19, we read that the creation waits with eager longing. And uh, all of creation, verse 22, we know the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth. And uh, what Romans 8 is saying, uh, you sort of figure it out in verse 20 here, is that not just us as individuals, and not just all the people in the world, but literally God's creation itself eagerly waits out of frustration for God to make all things new because things are not the way they're supposed to be. In verse 20, uh, Paul says creation was subjected to futility. In other words, it didn't choose to be this way. The world didn't choose to be frustrating to us. Uh, Murphy's Law reigns. Murphy's Law, basically, I was talking to my kids, they asked, like, what's Murphy's Law? And it's basically, whenever you need something to go well, it's certain to go wrong in the worst possible way at the worst possible time. Uh, That's sort of Murphy's Law. And uh, they're like, why is it that way? Well, creation didn't choose to be that way. And verse 20 and 21 tells us why. That it's, it was subjected to futility, held in bondage to corruption, verse 21. And it's not that the world is corrupt. It's that its rulers are corrupt. It's that those who were entrusted with creation, which is us, are corrupt. To really understand this, you have to go all the way back to the very beginning of the story. And what happened is God made the world relational. He made the world in such a way, in the beginning chapters of Genesis, where we're supposed to relate to God well and to one another out of love. And we're supposed to rule the world in a way that brings flourishing and life to the world. The first couple were to take the blessings of that garden and extend it into the world. And uh, when you inject selfishness and corruption and... uh, and all those aspects of the fall into the equation, you have a world that doesn't work the way it's supposed to. Everything is fractured. Because our relationship with God is fractured, my relationship with you is fractured, and you is fractured. And the way we care for the world is fractured. Everything is broken. It doesn't mean everything is as bad as it should be. And, uh, you know, theologians say that humans, we're, we're still beautiful. We still carry the image of God, but it's ruined. And the same is true of the world. We live in a what's been called a glorious ruin. Uh, you can still look out and see the world's beautiful. Louis Armstrong's right. It's a beautiful world. 
but it, it's also really, really, really messed up. There's not one part of the world that's not really messed up. And if it's not messed up, as soon as we find it, we'll mess it up. That's just sort of the way it is. And it's unfortunate, but it's true. And uh, so we, the world is broken because we broke it, and we're still breaking it. And, uh, and it extends not just to the world out there, but it extends to us. As those who live in it, this is our story. It's our daily experience. We live in a world that's frustrating because things don't work the way they're supposed to. We know it's supposed to work. That's why we're frustrated. It's supposed to work, and it doesn't, and we're frustrated. But uh, we ourselves are broken, and verse uh, 23 tells us that as well. Not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, the Christians who trusted in Jesus, the Spirit's working in us, we groan inwardly. And you're like, I don't groan inwardly. Well, he's talking about a deep spiritual level. God is at work in you through the Spirit in such a way that even your frustrations uh, and, and, your, and, the, and the groan you have, the longing you have, says something. And he's saying it's, what it's saying is, you're longing for your adoption as sons. In other words, you know as a Christian that you should not have the distance with your father that you have. That you actually long to be with your father. To have everything right. You know you should be a better child to your father. You should love him well, and you don't. And you're frustrated because he's adopted you. The, the papers have been stamped. We talked about it with adoption. But you're not with them. You're like a child who's been adopted from overseas. They've had a visit. They've had a good time. Paperwork's gone through. The judge has said, it's coming through. Like, And now you're just waiting for them to come and get you. And we're waiting for them to come and get us. And uh, it's a little frustrating. That's one part of the fact that we're broken and we're waiting, we're separated from God. He goes on to say, in verse 23, we also await the redemption of our bodies. And for most of you here in your you know, late teens, early 20s, this doesn't register much for you. You're healthy. You, if, if there's anything wrong with you, there's a good chance you did it to yourself. You know, like some foolish accident. You know. um, as you age, as you get older... Uh, and, and what begins to happen is not just like what happens to you is you begin to get gray hairs or you can no longer squat because your back hurts um, or you go to the gym like I do and you're like doing really weird exercises because you have to because you have a bad back. What are you doing? Like I have to do it this way. Just chill. Um, those, I mean, those are aggravations, but they're not to make you mourn. What makes you mourn is you begin to see death take people. Like first it's your parents' friends and then it's your parents' And then, as you get older, it's your own friends. Yeah, and you begin to long for things to be different than the way they are. Uh, you, you long for the redemption of your bodies and their bodies, for God to, to set right all that's wrong. And, you know, that's one of those things where we try to make peace with it. But in the end, you know, I counsel people that are experiencing it, we should be angry. Death also is an enemy. It's not supposed to be this way. Uh, God didn't design for us to lose our loved ones. It's the world we live in, um, but we long for the redemption of bodies, the restoration, the resurrection, and being with them again. And at, the, at the beginning of all this, Paul sums this whole mess, all this brokenness, up with the simple phrase, our present sufferings. In uh, Revelation chapter 21, verse 4, he, he takes it a little deeper, or John takes it deeper, and gives us this picture uh, verse 4, every tear, death, mourning, crying, pain. And he looks forward to the day when Jesus takes it all away. But this is our experience. And you may not feel it because you're in college. And, you know, death breaks in like once or twice a year. Uh, maybe more often for families, but it's a really unusual occurrence. 
So maybe that's not that strange. But look at all the other stuff, and that is a part of your experience, though. Uh, tears and mourning and crying and pain. Uh, that is part of your experience, even in college. And uh, we long for it to be different than it is. And it's because it's supposed to be different. Things aren't the way they're supposed to be. And uh, we often deny it. We live in denial. Uh, or we try to escape it. Or uh, we try to fix it. Um, but this is a universal, deep, broken problem. And we can't really deny it for very long or escape it or fix it. And I simply suggest that we admit it. Like, I'm not saying make peace with it. But just admit it, that you live in a terribly broken world where things aren't the way they're supposed to be and that you're not the way you're supposed to be. Like, it's part of your human experience. It's part of everyone's human experience. You know, in America, we say, how are you? And the, and the given normal expected reply is fine. It's fine. That's what we expect people to say, fine. And if they don't say fine, then we think they're a basket case and we walk away. They really start giving us like long answers about how everything's not good. We're like, oh, I'm not ready for your drama. But the real honest answer should be something along the lines of like, well, not so bad today, given that the whole world's broken. <laughs> I had a friend that would say, better than I deserve. Um, you know. Anyway, I'm not, I'm not trying to be dark, but we live in a world where things aren't the way they're supposed to be. And if things are going well for us, we should be really grateful. Um, so the way things are are not the way they're supposed to be. These texts don't highlight that. They just mention it. What they're doing is highlighting the way things will be. And in uh, chapter 21, Revelation, verse 5, uh, we hear one on the throne, that would be Jesus, one sitting on the throne saying, Behold, I am making all things new. Get that? I'm making all things new. It's really important. uh, Because what he's saying is not, I am making all new things. Uh, Some people have a view of heaven, of God, like destroying everything, starting all over. And what he's saying instead is, I am not making all new things. I'm making all the things, all the old things, new. In other words, it's not a recreation, but a restoration. God cares about his world enough to restore it and renew it. And uh, that's what's going on here. The way things will be is God restoring everything. And you really see that in chapter 22, these five verses I read. The reason I read so much was I wanted to highlight a few things. And I want to sit down in chapter 22 for a second and look at verses 1 to 5. We have this uh, final vision of what it's going to be like in this new heavens and new earth when God's people are with God. And uh, it's one of those deals where like, if this was a movie, you would be watching this and you would say, Man, this seems so familiar to me. And it's because it is. It's evocative of the very first chapters of the Bible. Um, we, we have here a restored garden. We have a river flowing from the throne past the trees. You see the trees of life and trees of knowledge of good and evil. This is all right from the very first chapters of the Bible. And what we have here is God restoring things to the way they were supposed to be to begin with. God created the world to work rightly. Us with Him in close relationship, loving one another, ruling the world well. And He didn't give up on that plan. Instead, He works all the way through the Bible to redeem His people. And then at the end, He restores it to the way it's supposed to be. And what we have now is not exactly a garden, but a grown garden, a garden city. 
but these elements are still there. And so we have life restored in, in chapter 2, in verse 2, that is. The tree of life is there, and that life, uh, that tree of life gives healing to the nations. Uh, you know, we're, we're all going to enter heaven broken, some more broken than others, and uh, God brings healing. And then righteousness restored. We see God on his throne in verse 3, and the Lamb in particular. Uh, That is Jesus. Uh, And and the Lamb imagery is very important. Uh, this this means in some way that, that Jesus, when we get to heaven, will like literally be a lamb with like hair and cute little. We get to we get to pick up baby Jesus lamb and carry him around. That is not <laughs> what the text means. It's evoking again the image, and the image here is of one who was slain. Jesus is a lion, conquering king, and he defeats his enemies in this book. But he's also like a lamb who lays down his life. And what John is saying is, when he sees Jesus, he sees a crucified king. He sees the marks, like when Jesus appeared in his resurrection body, he still had the marks in his hands. That Jesus, even on the throne in glory, carries the marks of his death for us. That's the God that died in the person of Jesus for us. Um, And it's he who's at the center of all these things. It's he that's ruling and makes everything right. He's at the center of this renewed uh, universe, this new world. And this is how God goes about making everything right. Verse 4, we see our relationship with God restored. Earlier in chapter 21, God uses the language of fathers and sons. I will be with you as your father. You'll be my sons. I'll be with my people. This is what we long for. This was God's intent all along for us to be with him. And in verse 5, we get our old jobs back. In verse 5, night will be no more. They'll need no light for lamp or sun. The Lord will be their light and they will reign forever. This is what we were supposed to do to begin with. And uh, in the garden, we were supposed to be God's little vice rulers, ruling under his care. Uh, The reason you want to work so much is because God made you like that. You had a great job. You're supposed to take God's blessing and extend it into the world. It was the best job description ever. And we really messed it up. And uh, and even though we do it poorly now, God's going to give us our old jobs back. We get to do it again. Uh, Because that's the way he made us. So here we have God restoring all the goodness of the world back to the way it's supposed to be. And that's the world. And then us personally, we we get the treatment as well. And here in Romans 8, we sort of read that. I highlighted this a little bit last week with sanctification. Now, the goal of sanctification is to make us like Jesus. Uh, Romans 8.28 talks about us being conformed to the image of Jesus. God is at work in His people to make us beautiful like Jesus. It's Jesus' aim and the Spirit's work to conform us more and more into Jesus' purity, into His loveliness, into His beauty, um, to make us more and more like Him. And uh, what uh, Romans 8.30 is saying with that last word, glorified, is that God will finish the work. God will completely finish His work of making us like Jesus. That we will be healthy, for those of us who aren't. That we will be whole, like a united I mean, sometimes we feel like in life, like we're a ball of thread and the pieces are coming apart and we're trying to hold it all together. We'll be whole, united persons the way we're supposed to be. Holy and loving. We'll be like Jesus. And uh, and, and God's going to do it. So we've seen the way it's going to be and we've seen the way it is. And uh, the question, the last question I want to ask and answer is, uh, how do we live in between? So the way it is is not the way it's supposed to be. 
in the way it's supposed to be, or will be in the, in the future, is amazing. Where God heals everything, restores everything, and makes us like Him. Well, how do we live right now? That's what's coming, but this is where I am. And uh, in Romans 8, verse 18, Paul writes, I consider the present sufferings, or the sufferings of this present time, not worth comparing with the glory to be revealed. I can say a lot of things about this verse. and I think uh, one way abstractly, just reading that, I'm like, okay, that's a pretty nice little equation. The glory is going to be really great, so it outweighs all the present sufferings. That's really easy for me to say right now because I'm not really suffering. Yeah, it depends on where you are in proximity to suffering, perhaps. Uh, but Paul, who who had suffered quite a bit, says, when we take into account the weight, the goodness, the depth, the, the expanse of beauty, uh, the greatness of what God's going to do in making all things right, it outweighs everything we do or all the suffering we endure. Uh, to that end, I want to recommend an article. I borrowed uh, all everything I've ever said about glorification has probably been influenced by this somewhat. It's called The Weight of Glory by C.S. Lewis. I'll read a little bit from it at the end. We've got two copies here if you want to take them. Um, but I want to give you three things to think about as it regards living now in between the way it is and the way it will be. And the first one is we're to live with longing. Uh, Romans 8 talks about how the creation groans and longs. It talks about how we long as well. We long for adoption, the restoration of our bodies. And I think you need to admit that you are people who have longings. And it's sort of weird to say that because like, it feels like something you would say like in a sex ed class. Let's talk about our longings. That's well, no, not. Um, uh, but a, uh, you know, Paul's talking about a deeper fundamental level. We were made... For relationships with God and others in the world that are supposed to work, and they don't. And we long for them, and we're frustrated. And that's actually not necessarily bad. It depends on how we, what we do with them. But the longings themselves are good. God made us for those things. And uh, we need to admit that and realize that. And then be very careful about what, how we answer those longings. I'll talk about that in a moment. So live with the longing. Because um, I'll just say this: living, the temptation is to dull those longings. They hurt. They can hurt, unanswered. They can they can wear on you, and so we may try to anesthetize ourselves or keep ourselves busy or distract us. But uh, longing for good things is not a bad thing. Uh, live with hope. And in the Bible, hope is not this wishy-washy thing, but there are reasons for it. And just a couple of things here. Um, verse 25, we're called to wait patiently. And verse 23, we're called to wait eagerly. Somewhere between patiently and eagerly. And uh, the reason we can do this is because uh, we have confidence God's going to deliver. And because God's still at work in us even now. Um, verse 26 and 27 talks about how God meets us, and I'm going to read it. But the reality is, as we wait for God to make all things right, including us, our temptation is to grow impatient. How do we fix it? What do we do? At times we can feel very weak. And verses 26 and 27, which I would encourage you to go home and read, tells us that God doesn't leave us on our own to figure it out, but He comes to us in the person of the Spirit, and He ministers to us and serves us, even in our confusion, even in our weakness. God basically uses our frustrated groans (laughs) and everything else uh, to draw us close and to make us like Him. He's at work at us, even in our weakness, and uh, enabling us to wait and to be patient and to hope. 
And so I think we have here reasons to believe that we really can live in this broken world with hope. And, um, and hope, again, is not a naive optimism, and nor is it cynicism. It's a, it's a real expectant belief that God is going to work and make things the way they're supposed to be, including us. So live with the longing, live with hope, and lastly, live with confidence. And uh, the reason you can live with confidence is a couple things we talked about tonight. One, Revelation tells us how it ends. Jesus wins. Okay. That's really important when you take a big picture view of the world. You know, myopically, you're just concerned about classes or that guy or that girl over there or your next job, then maybe it's not that big a deal. If you take a big picture view of the world, the idea and the reality that Jesus wins is the most important thing. Uh, he wins, and because the one who wins is the king, and because the one who's the king is the lamb who loved you and gave himself for you. Let that sink in. Jesus is the lamb who gave his life for you. He's the king on the throne in the center of the victory. Like, that's him. He's working for you. That's a reason to be confident. Okay? You have the king of the universe that loves you and is at work. You should be confident. And you know what kind of work he's doing. He's working to make you like himself. And he's pledged in chapter 8 to continue to do that until he finishes the work, until he makes you like himself, until you're glorified, until he drags you into his glory and you are swallowed up and transformed by it. That's good news. That's great stuff. So uh, last week, uh, Caleb suggested we talk about what is your favorite thing ever. I remember that last week to talk about your favorite thing ever. And I couldn't really figure out what my favorite thing ever was. I think like three. But one of them I named was um, live music, right? I said I like going to concerts. And so, uh, like right after last Tuesday, I went to a concert on Wednesday. Uh, a, a person I really like a lot, Ryan Adams. And uh, some of you guys were here. And, uh, you know, a couple things about the show I'll tell you about. One, the opening act was fantastic. Usually you go to a show and the opening act's a little lame, or you don't know their music, and so even if they're good, it's hard to appreciate them. I've never been to a show where everyone knew the words of the opening act. Like, this guy, they were the most popular band in England for 10 years, which I didn't know. Uh, sold more albums than anybody else from 95 to 05. They killed it, and everyone loved them, so he had a great opening act. And then Ryan Adams is a great singer-songwriter, which I knew. I knew I loved his songs. But he and his band bring it. It was amazing. They played well. He was witty in between and sarcastic and dark and all the things that I like. And, uh, <laughs> and, and, uh, and moody and brooding. At one point, some uh, big guy yelled something. He's like, I don't know what you said, but I can tell you're a big guy. You missed the gym today, didn't you? You thought you'd come to a Ryan Adams song? concert to make yourself feel better and uh you know just witty banter like my kind of show and uh, it, it, uh for me a, a good musical performance has a way of bringing you into the experience you know the words you feel the bass you feel the movement of the music you're a part of what's going on and uh you know at, at one point about halfway through the show you know just sort of part of the whole experience enjoying everything and then Ryan Adams who has about 14 albums he's released over 20 years I've listened to them all I know I've listened to them all he plays a song that I don't know but everyone else knows it <laughs> and then he plays another song that I don't know but everyone else knows it like everyone's singing but it feels like and then he plays another song that everyone else knows, but I don't know. 
And uh, up to that point, it was just a great concert. I was even like taking notes, like good sermon illustrations from his songs, like fix it. Yeah, we're trying to fix it. We want things like glory, like give me something good. We're trying to hang on to everything. It's our little idols. And at that point, I realized, no, the real illustration for this song, how it fits into glorification is, we lean heavily onto things that we think will ultimately deliver as good. And they might be really good. But in the end, they ultimately let us down. And, uh, and I'm not saying it was a letdown of a concert. It was great. But, you know, you, you think, this is the thing. This is amazing. And then you're reminded, like, no, you're still an outsider. Like, you're still an outsider. It, it, you don't get to be a part of the thing. And uh, C.S. Lewis wrote about this. And I'm going to read it just a little bit in his Weight of Glory. Um, he's talking about our longing or desire for beauty. The books are the music in which we thought, the, and this could be other things, music, books, job, or relationship, in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trust them. It's not in them, it only came through them. And that which came through them was our longing, our longing to be part of something. These things, the beauty, the memory, they're good images of what we really desire, but they're not the thing itself. They're only the scent of a flower that we've not found. They're the echo of a tune we've not heard. They're news from a country we've never visited yet. Later on he writes, We do not want merely to see beauty, though God knows even that's bounty enough. We want something else which can hardly be put into words. We want to be united with the beauty we see. We want to pass into it. We want to receive it into ourselves. We want to bathe in it to become part of it. And what he's really saying there is we want to be a part of glory. That sense of everything that's good and right that's just out there right beyond our grasp, the way things are supposed to be. We were wired for that. And there's glimpses of it. We see through things in our lives, and we tend to trust in them, and they ultimately let us down. But that doesn't mean there's not something out there that effectively delivers in the end. And it is. It's Jesus. Um, He's the one that brings the home we long for. He's the one that makes things the way they're supposed to be. He's the one that unites us with our Father. He's the one that brings ultimate healing. He's the one that brings us into us glory and restores everything. All right, so uh, that was a long one. Sorry about that. A lot of things to say to wrap up the whole Bible. Um, but uh, I'll leave excusing myself uh, and to share my Ron Adams story. Uh, as I've done a couple times, uh, I'll take your questions. If you have them, feel free to ask a question. A question. While you're thinking of your questions, I'll go ahead. That's a great question, and probably of all the questions I've been asked this summer, it's probably the hardest to answer. And I say that because uh, some of the other questions were maybe like more theologically difficult, or more nuanced, or more unusual. This one's really practical. Uh, you know, the, the Bible's 
answer to the reason for hope is multi-layered, but it's almost always hinged on the person of Jesus. He's the one that makes us right. He's the one that declares us right. He's the one that dies for us. He's the one that's at work in us. He's the one that's going to fix everything in the end. Um, and the Bible doesn't offer a lot of hope to those outside of it. it. It does point out that God is kind and patient. It points out that God gives good things to everyone, um, but that he does expect people to turn to him and repent. Um, you know, I, ultimately, you, you, you can't flip a switch on someone and make them a Christian. And even if there was, I don't think you should necessarily do it. Um, that's, that's the work of God and, and, at work in them and uh, their own process. I, I think the simple answer is you're called to be a good friend and be patient and to care for them. And, uh, you know, uh, if there are sufferings due to injustice, you help work for justice. If their suffering is due to misunderstanding, you help them with misunderstanding. With understanding, you help them in whatever way you can. Um, but I, I would be careful about giving them false hope, uh, because ultimately, um, it's our propensity, our tendency to put our hopes in things that let us down. We do it all the time, and I think we want to be careful that we don't do that with people. That we don't give them reasons to hope in things that may let them down. So, yeah. That may be a very disappointing answer to some of you. If so, I'm sorry. Other questions?